Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Have you sat back over the last two decades and thought about the sheer number of fatalities surrounding this case? Can I tell you a secret? That you man killed what happened? Those kids. Our kids. Why? My whole brain's a bunch of missing pieces. That's when it all started. Panic. Hello and welcome to Still Watching True Detective. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you're just joining us for the first time, this is what we do on this show. Each week, we break down the latest episode of True Detective, including the latest theories, twists, and turns. There are some doozies in this one. This week, we will be discussing Season 3, Episode 3, The Big Never, which was directed by Daniel Sackheim and written by Nick Pizzolatto. If you have not watched up through Episode 3, you might want to press pause on this and go watch it. Or you can listen to us spoil the whole episode for you, if you like. That's up to you. Some people are freaks. They like that. Some people like that kind of thing. We also have a great interview this week. We've got um, the lovely Ray Fisher, who plays Henry, Wayne's son, on the show. We're really excited to have him. So that will that will crop up later on the episode. Um, and we also got a bunch of feedback from you guys this week from our first two episodes that we recorded. You can always email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com, um, if you have something really interesting you want to say. So I'm just going to hit a few of those things. Firstly, someone alerted like alerted me on Twitter, and then someone else told me that if you look up the night that Steve McQueen died – the real night that he died, um, which I can't remember that date off the top of my head. I apologize. November 7th, 1980, I think, something like that. Um, it was not a like full moon. There was no moon on that night. Oh. Um, and so, I, I mean, I don't think that actually really means anything because I think, like, um, as you outlined in the first episode, like, there's, a, you know, a, a lyrical poetry to, like, doing a true detective murder on the night that Steve McQueen died sort of thing. And then they like wanted a bright moon for it. So I don't think, I think they just like didn't care that there wasn't actually a moon up there. Yeah. I, I think that Nick Pizzolatto and company are thorough, but, but they're maybe not always that thorough. Yeah. Or maybe they looked it up yeah. and they're like, eh, yeah. <laughs> eh, doesn't serve our purposes. Um, someone sent me in a correction about the people. I think that I had said that Lucy's creepy cousin Dan uh, had made a people to look at Will while he was sleeping on the couch, but everyone else appears to think that it's to look at Julie in her room, which is a. I mean, either way, Dan's a creep. He looking at one of the kids while they were sleeping. If so. he's the one who made the hole. Um, if he is the one who made the hole. Good point. All right. So, um, that happened. And then this is my favorite. I'm going to start with my favorite email, um, that we got, which, um, it, it has to do with wigs. So, um, you know, I'm always here for wig content and, um, it's from, oh, they didn't leave their name. Anyway, this person just said, my theory is that 1980 wig Stephen Dorff looks like if Chris Pine was Dennis Quaid. How do you feel about that assessment, Richard? 
Uh, well, I think it the, the email did not have a signature because you just like emailed yourself about wigs. <laughs> I that's, do that's often I email myself about wigs. It's true. Um, but yeah, no, I I I I I could see it. I can see it. I, I and I you know look, I really would encourage um, you know wig content to keep coming, whether it's coming from you, Joanna, in in some sort of ambient induced night emailing or act from actual listeners. Yeah, the wig echo chamber. Um, I'm I'm fully capable of generating wig content on my own. But if you guys want to supplement it with your wig thoughts, please do. Uh, email us. Uh, we got an email from Kellen M. in Chicago who floated a, a theory that they had seen on Reddit, which I've also seen uh, some places, which is that um, I don't know if we actually entertain this idea. I entertain it for a second that Sarah Gadden's character, Eliza, who's the um, director of the TV show, is actually Julie Purcell, um, which is a like a fun thought to entertain for a second until you do the math on how old Sarah Gadden is. And it just doesn't really line up at all with how old Julie Purcell would need to be. So um, that would have been a fun twist, but I don't think... Um, unless like this is uh, stealthily a show about the benefits of moisturizing and drinking a lot of water, like <laughs> right, because Julie would be in her like forties, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Sarah, Sarah is not is not that old. And then we talked a bit um, about the significance of Stephen Dorff's character's name, Roland West. Um, and I like I had all these ideas about Stephen King and the West and all sorts of like that. Um, but uh, Jeff Connor wrote in to let us know that there was a real person named uh, a, a notable person named Roland West, uh, who is a semi obscure silent era filmmaker. Um, and so do what do we think that this is a reference to this um, filmmaker who made movies like The Bat Whispers and The Big Trail? I'm not sure. But Jeff does point out in his email that there is an episode of the great podcast, You Must Remember This, um, by the great Karina, Karina Longworth, about um, the murder of Thelma Todd and, and Roland West was a suspect in that. So, um, you know, if you want to do some supplemental listening that may or may not have anything to do with still watching uh, True Detective, I, I would never shy away from recommending an episode of Karina's show. So, Yeah, I wouldn't also put it past Nick Pizzolatto to make a reference like that, you know? That's true. I think that's um, true. I think it just means rolling west. We're headed west. Manifest destiny. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, we also got a really nice email from a listener, uh, Peyton, who lives in Fayetteville, where they filmed uh, the show. And Peyton is offered to be our sort of expert in Fayetteville knowledge. So um, I promise, uh, Peyton, if we have any Fayetteville questions, I will send you an email about them. And um, oh, let's ask let's ask Peyton a Fayetteville question right now. Mm. Um, what's the best place to get a hamburger in Fayetteville? That's my question. What do you? What's your question about Fayetteville, Richard? I mean, that's a pretty important question. Yeah. All right. Let's stick with that. Burger, best burger in Fayetteville. Let us know if you have an opinion and you're not Peyton. You can also email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail .com. Um, and then lastly, I just want to say we got this email from this from uh, someone named Christopher. Thank you so much, Christopher. Christopher uh, only watched Shop Objects because we covered it. And wound up getting a Camille tattoo by the end of the show. Whoa. So um, I think that's the first tattoo that our podcast is like partially responsible for. So uh, thanks, Christopher. That makes us feel well, like... Except for my full Romanov's arm sleeve. Right, 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 right. I forgot about that. And yeah, um, yeah. so it's a, it's a beautiful tapestry. And I can't wait for you all to see it someday on Richard's arm. And also for us all to find out where the best burger in Fayetteville is. Um, if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, please do email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Let's get into this episode. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mel. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOC. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Richard, I have a really important question for you. Okay. <laughs> On a scale of one to Taron Edgerton or Ben Barnes, how attractive do you find 1990 Stephen Dorff? I mean, he got a glow up from 1980. <laughs> right? I loved all the fun ways they kind of indicated that, like, especially him driving up in his kind of muscle car with his shades on to go see Scoot McNary much later in the episode. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, he just like 1990 him just like took well to like rising in the ranks. And I think it's funny. I think he looks great. Yeah. Winning. Uh, definitely wearing a, a jacket, the kind of jacket that like my, my dearly departed grandpa used to wear. Um, just a great, a great look for this like well to do Arkansas lieutenant. Um, but yeah, he's had a major promotion. He's sort of like a, a muckety muck in the force. And so you get the sense. I mean, we actually get more indication of this in this episode, but like that Wayne got kind of screwed by the end of mm-hmm. the 1980 investigation. Um, and whereas Roland benefited and got promoted. So, um, this, these are things we learned. But what I do like, what I love actually about this episode is how much we see role, uh, we see Roland like missing his friend, being very loyal. They're not close anymore after they stopped working together, after they stopped being partners, they were no longer close, but there isn't like, resentment there he's just sort of like he's very fond of Wayne and it's yeah. it's really sweet to see so yeah I think it's really I think it's like a really uh we see plenty of things buddy cop stuff you know partners um but rarely does it get to a a genuine sense of like real connection you know um it's more like funny or something like that but this is that yeah like clearly there is a, a real emotion um passing between the two of them especially in this episode coming from roland which i feel like is a nice um you know in inversion of a, of a more familiar story which is like you know they haven't seen each other in years because they're like enemies or something right, or some exactly. you know something bad happened but now it's just like he's like yeah we just kind of stopped um, and then, you know, this spoiler alert for the very end of this episode, it ends with them like coming back together. And there's, mm-hmm. the, you just like, this episode earns that. I feel like you go through this episode and you're like, oh, what a shame. Oh, he likes him so much. And then you're like, oh, they're back together. It's really sweet. Yeah. Um, so, you know, too bad it has to be a murder that brings them together. Anyway, so we get some more details of the case and, and we get, a sense of what kind of narrator 1990 Roland is because we've already seen 1990 Wayne lie a bit and have lapses in memories and Roland lies too because there's a point when these lawyers are asking him like why did you show up to the Purcell house so late to like check out this ransom note what were you doing and he's like oh I don't know but we know that they were beating the shit out of a pedophile so you know he's he's like he's not being forthright about that, but like, can you blame him? Because, you know, it wasn't a a great thing that they were doing. And then we get this wrinkle of this reward, which just throws like, it just further complicates their case that this organization, the Ozark Outreach Center has put out a huge reward, a five figure reward, I think, or maybe six figures, I think five figures. Um, for information on, on Julie. And this is just, uh, you know, made their investigation just like flooded with false tips. Um, and, and they are, they're not a fan of it. So, yeah. And as we saw in particular in season two of this show, um, is Pizzolatto likes a kind of murky institution, you know, that kind of like is involved somehow or looms over the case somehow. And I feel like this is the introduction possibly of that kind of thing to this season, which, um, I found pretty intriguing. And, you know, especially cause it's like a, a processing plant like it has a kind of grim identity anyway that that is behind this organization so uh, i don't know i just thought it was interesting yeah so the organization is like a, a philanthropic arm of some food processing plant where lucy purcell worked on the chicken line which is like a really fun like evocative southern thing to say i worked on the chicken line um at hoy foods and yeah so this is this is like you're right i hadn't even thought about like both season one and season two have these like very shadowy organizations and like what's what's even slightly creepier is that this has like a billionaire behind a shadowy billionaire behind it and then uh the logo for the outreach has like you know a kid on i don't know kid logos you know creep me out so um i'm suited i'm suitably creeped out by this uh who knows if it's going to be a major thing um and then we um we cut over to, you know, they do one of those cutesy, like, 
uh, Roland says, oh, Wayne would remember. And then we cut to Wayne in the office in 2015 getting his memory tested, right? And um, this is where we get some answers of your question of like, what was the significance of shoe pick and briar rose, which is the intersection he found himself at the end of season two. And it, and I haven't had a chance to look up if it is like exactly where the Purcell house was, but it's in that neighborhood, which is what his son Henry says basically in the exam. You know, he's like, he's, he's caught up in this old case, this unsolved case. And that's where he wound up. Uh, and that he could walk there reminds us that he's still deeply in this place. Like it's yeah. not like he left town or anything like he is very much where he was when this all went down, which like probably in some senses helps with his memory, but certainly doesn't help with his, what if it's, if it's indeed like a sort of slow burning trauma that he's experiencing. But, but yeah, it was just kind of crazy to think that he could just like walk there, you know? Yeah. It's, um, and, um, we get more of this like father son dynamic of like a father, a grown son trying to handle his like father in the grips of dementia, uh, where Wayne says like, if you try to put me in a home, I'll off myself. This is just like, you know, what, what is Henry to do with all of this basically? And they don't quite name the disease, right? Like that, that's kind of the, the, uh, the appointed thing in the scene where he's like, and you can't even say what it is. And the doctor says something like, well, we can say what we think it is or something. I don't know. Like there, there seems to be some dancing around maybe the word Alzheimer's. I'm not really sure, but, um, uh, yeah, clearly- it is, it is interesting that they didn't name it, um, but circled right around it. So. Uh, and then we get this like fairly arresting shot. I would say it's a, it's a first shot of the season that I really just like sat back and admired the artistry of. And that's, uh, Daniel Sackheim's work, which is Wayne and Amelia sitting in a car, like bathed in the red glow of, uh, the, the Walgreens sign. It's Walgreens, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's just sort of like this, this like, you know, inferno-esque sort of lighting or, or lighting that you and I are familiar from like assassination of Johnny Versace or something like that, you know, like watching people be bathed in this other light while they talk about something. And, um, you know, Amelia is asking, you know, she's there, they're, they're at the Walgreens um, because this is where Julie's uh, prince pinged um, somewhere in the Walgreens on a crime scene. And, you know, Amelia is there with Wayne and she's asking him questions about the case. Um, Wayne says he's tired of the case being part of their lives, like one decade on. And I'm like, Oh, buddy, it's going to be part of your life forever. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sorry to tell you. And, um, and I think that yeah. this scene, interestingly, you know, informs a later scene in this episode where like she's kind of using it as foreplay. Oh, this stakeout investigation kind of thing. And he is clearly not on that wavelength at all. Yet he is drawn to that place, you know? Um, so he's in it, but he's not in it in the same way that she is, which clearly will come to sort of have come to bear on their relationship going forward. Yeah. She gets very riled up by this. Um, and she wants to go to a motel and have a lot of sex with him. There's also like, okay, so, so let's, let's, uh, just right now name this ongoing suspicion that you and I have um, that you floated last week, which is that Amelia is the killer, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And I see nothing in this episode to disabuse me of that theory at all. Um, And in fact, this scene, like, it's not just that she gets kind of excited by the case, which is creepy, but also this idea of maybe Amelia using her, um, her sexuality to, like either get what she wants or distract someone when she doesn't want them thinking too hard about what she's doing. Do you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Chiefly on Wayne, but also in these other detectives in this episode. So, um, you know, she's like, she's talking about how she's going to like get all done up bookish, but sexy, which goes back to this, like, thing we talked about in an earlier episode about how she used to go change her name and go to another town, St. Louis and change her name and sort of thing. So she loves doing stuff like this. Um, he makes a reference to did you have you ever seen the show Heart to Heart, which is like a seventies detective show about a married married couple doing detective yeah, stuff? I have and there was some podcast I listened to where they would joke about the opening credits or someone did like a remake of the opening credits. I don't remember, but like yeah, I'm aware of the show. That sounds like something like um you know, the, uh, like Scott Ackerman would do or something like that. Yeah. It's, but, um, it's very comedy bang bang. Scott yeah. And Paul of Tompkins kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's, he makes, he's like, what are we, some Afro heart to heart? And I was like, all right, I, I get that reference. <laughs> um, 
Um, before we move on from this <laughs> yeah. scene, um, yeah. I just I, I was imagining someone from HBO sitting down at an executive at Walgreens, and the executive at Walgreens is like, <laughs> "Okay, so wait, what is this product placement going to look like?" And how, what is the context? So she's not <laughs> murdered in the store, right? She's just there. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's do it. <laughs> Cause it's I'm like in. this huge brand, like, like logo. It's really funny. Well, there's a big Walmart, uh, you know. Oh God, that's right. Which, one too. which is a funny kind of thing because 1990 Arkansas, you know, and he says store shouldn't be this big. Like, I don't know the exact history of Walmart, but obviously it originated from, from Arkansas. And, um, I'm just trying to picture, like, it's funny to think of the people of Arkansas for, for whom that company, uh, you know, has, well, it's earned a lot of money for very few people, but like, um, it's just funny to think of, of a local being like, what is this? And now it's of course such a, um, what is this Walmart? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I remember the first time I ever went inside a Walmart and I had a similar reaction where I like, I couldn't see the other side of the store and I'd never been in a place where I couldn't like see the other side of the store from where I was. Obviously, uh, stores just keep getting bigger and bigger. Anyway, um, so then we, then we hop, you know, they, they go off to the motel of sex. We hop to the 1980s and like we see once again, Amelia embroiled in the case when like Roland, um, suggests they get Amelia to help them interrogate, like, the neighborhood kids, you know? And so it's just like, yeah, she's in it. She's in it every, every angle, every step of the way. So. Yeah. There yeah. was a moment in this car scene where basically, um, Wayne is like, wait, we didn't follow up on the fact that, um, the neighbor boy said, no, we never had plans. And it's like, that should have stuck out. Like, that's a pretty big detail to kind of have to rethink and then, you know, investigate. Um, because if the kids weren't where they said they were and there was no indication from the, that kid that, um, they ever were going to be hanging out, like, th- I feel like that's a pretty big narrative to have overlooked, uh, you know, once. Yeah. Um, so maybe they're not the best detectives is what you're saying. Or it's just how the story had to play out on, on TV. <laughs> um, we, we find out, as we said, that like, you know, uh, Wayne got screwed somehow at the end of the 1980, uh, investigation. Uh, I'm presuming we'll find out more why or how. Um, and that, and that like Roland keeps trying to get Wayne transferred to his office, but he keeps getting blocked. And so, um, that's, that's all information we take into this whole plot. Line. I think I just want to run through this whole plot line of like what the kids were doing when they weren't where they were supposed to be. Yeah. And like, as it turns out, Will and Julie like didn't have any friends basically. Mm-hmm. And they were always off somewhere mysteriously with someone else, probably an adult. Um, and we get some clues about this. Um, there was some sort of D and D esque dice game. That yeah. seems to be this, that, 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 that Will was particularly obsessed with. Right. Yeah, they find Will's dice, they find his character sheet, sort of like in his binder and stuff like that. Um, we saw that D&D manual on his, on his like, um, dresser in an earlier episode. So like, he is part of some ongoing game, um, that I really can't wait for Reddit to like, look at that character sheet that we see in this episode and break down everything that it means. Um, but, uh, I don't know if Julie was involved in that game, but, but basically, but Julie was in possession of a bunch of notes in hand running that looks very adult to me i don't know any kid who can like block print that well um with some you know kind of ominous um you know i'll always keep you safe don't listen it's okay have a good night like these are little notes that are being left or passed to her um by someone who's sort of like taking ownership of her and like trying to win her confidence sort of thing and then and then in investigating everything wayne finds the dice a bloody rock where will will's head was caved in basically um and a bunch of toys uh including like a a han and leia doll the cornus dolls uh, a toy medical kit um a bunch of other stuff and a big bodybuilder toy right and then tom and lucy are like we didn't buy these toys for them so someone's buying toys luring the children into the woods um and you know occupying their time and so all of that we find out all of that and one detail that i thought was interesting was that when we go through this plot line um 
Wayne says in the 2015 storyline when he's remembering everything, he's like, he remembers that the people in the town got so freaked out by the games that they thought like their kids, if they played those games, would get murdered. Mm-hmm. So like maybe there was like a big D&D ban in West Winger, Arkansas around this time. But like it reminds me of we like it's hard to think of that being applied to D&D, but like. We saw this, um, in, you know, in our youth, Richard, when like Columbine happened or something like that, and like video games are blamed, or Marilyn, the music of Marilyn Manson was blamed, or whatever it is, like that. That uh, scared parents will find things in the culture to blame, and so like if it's D and D, I guess you know, like that's, that's yeah. When I was a kid, I, I'm I'm a little bit older than you. Um, when Sacco and Vanzetti happened, they blamed stickball, so we couldn't play stickball <laughs> anymore. Are you and Sarah Gadden on the same moisturizing routine? It's amazing. You oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so these are, this is like, this is a big element that we find out of the case that like basically there was some adult and then we get, you know, basically, um, Roland and Wayne go to I- interrogate this farmer who like has the house that's closest to, the scene where Will was murdered. And the and, trail, the, the, the path wasn't on their map or something, so they yeah. didn't think to look for it. Which I guess, like, I buy that, like, in 1980, semi-rural Arkansas, there would be a swath of just kind of land that they were, that people were not aware of. Right. But, um, you know, intriguingly, this, this farmer says that someone with a badge already came and asked him. Uh, about this he mentions a brown sedan which is an important clue um and then he mentions a couple a man and a woman black and white the black male and a white female and this is like um we get two mentions i think of a, a like a black male sort with of with a scar with a scar and i wish he had a limp too um but yeah so that's that's a that's a question mark that but i do want to say of that scene where Roland and Wayne go to interrogate this farmer. Um, we, we've seen like, you know, some already definitely like racial stuff, um, directed at Wayne, but this scene where like, it's not, it's not like anyone's throwing around racial epithets, but it's just the way that this like white, I'm going to call him a cracker farmer, like treats Wayne that he like, I think he calls him son. And when he calls him son, uh, Wayne's eyes, like Marshall Ali, like bulges his eyes out of his head in a way that just like reminds me of like Sidney Poitier, like they call me Mr. Tibbs sort of, uh, reaction. Um, it's, it's yeah. like, it's, 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 uh, the microaggressions, which we see the impact of in like a scene that takes place in 1990. But like the, these are the things that of course every day, a, a black detective has to deal with in Arkansas. Yeah. And even though Wayne is asking most of the questions, the farmer is mostly directing his answers at Roland. Right. right. Which I, cause like, as if he won't, but then he does eventually kind of turn and acknowledge him when he's like, they were like you or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think that was a subtly done scene um, where it wasn't making the farmer some sort of cartoony villain of racism or like, like avatar of racism. It was more just like a very commonplace sort of, behavior that was you know like you said a kind of microaggressive uh sort of thing that that accumulates over time into uh i don't know a a sort of trauma yeah and just baked baked into the experience of being there so Mm -hmm. um we should mention that you know wayne as we said he wayne takes the kids to walmart loses becca briefly his daughter in walmart has a you know, disproportionate freak out about it because, you know, like all the Purcell stuff is fresh on his mind. And that scene is echoed beautifully later in the episode um, when he's having his kind of hallucination of Amelia in 2015. And he says, I lost Rebecca. So maybe this scene we see in the movie because, or in the show, because he's sort of like in the way that memories are sort of like, you know, fading in and out on this show. Like maybe that's why we saw that it's because for him, that's a concrete memory of quote, losing Rebecca. Whereas he's really referring to a bigger thing. And then anyway, we'll talk about that scene later, but I um, love that. I hadn't thought about that. That's great. Yeah. Um, and so like, meanwhile, like it, it both serves to echo that. And also, 
to be a contrast to what Amelia is up to when he's like doing, I don't know, quote unquote, woman's work in the Walmart buying toilet paper or whatever is, um, you know, she's she's doing what she loves to do, which is dressing up bookish but sexy and going to talking to detectives claiming that Wayne is her ex-husband um, going out to dinner with one of the detectives um, getting a drink with him looking at evidence that she should not have access to um, and you know just gathering her own information and like this you know if if you want to trail along our theory that um, Amelia is like Amelia is a killer like her persistent questions about Julie you know let's say Julie's alive like it's bad for Amelia if this Julie is alive and Julie is real and Julie comes forward. Right. Mm-hmm. So like I see her as like low key panicking and trying to do what she can do to figure out to get in front of this, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what it, that's what it seems like to me. Um, and I guess we should mention that, um, in pursuit of this, of this like Ozark children's research organization, Roland and Wayne go to the food plant. Uh, I have a question for you about this scene. So they go, they talk, they find out about this like shadowy billionaire Hoyt and they, um, Lucy worked there. And so they ask this guy who's, you know, de facto this, head of the organization. This kind whatever. of like officious, kind, but also kind of creepy guy. Yeah. They ask him to, find out anyone who's ever worked there right um and he's like that's like 700 people they're like cool get to step in um do do you think that that was like real information that they needed or did they want to give him busy work as vengeance for all the busy work that he had caused for them no i think that that i think that wayne thinks that okay maybe that that, that it was an employee uh, because of the bag that they found because of the bag and then maybe maybe the employee knew uh, their mom and that, you know, whatever that's, you know, but I also think that it, it, an interesting little detail in the scene was talking about, um, I guess it's Mr. Hoyt, right? Um, who's off in Africa hunting. And I know that that still goes on thanks to the fucking Trump kids, but like <laughs> there's this sense of sort of something old and like, colonial about that idea of this like shadowy rich man in in africa hunting you know like i don't know there mm-hmm. was just this kind of element of something strangely atavistic about that about that scene and i think it's probably not really any a pertinent detail necessarily but like just more atmosphere that i appreciate it well if like i'm just like you know like i said full on full on this amelia theory like I could see Hoyt being a red herring down the road, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. like that's, he's, he could function as a red herring if we needed him to. Um, also in this scene, like, you know, he talks about um, this Hoyt employee talks about the fact that his boss is off hunting. And then the camera is just on Wayne at the window, looking intently out as you hear Roland said, Oh, my partner hunt, hunts too. Like, yeah. you know, that's a, that was a great shot. I thought, um, we also get uh, my favorite element of True Detective, which is a yarn wall. <laughs> um, I love, yay. Um, obviously, Russ Cole has the ultimate yarn wall that took up like an entire shed uh, in season one of True Detective. Um, and for those of you who don't know a yarn wall, um, I don't know, that's not like its real name, but it's what a friend of mine started calling it years ago, which is just like, you know, a yarn wall usually applies to a conspiracy theorist who has like a corkboard full of like cards that are connected with like usually red yarn that's like this leads to that leads to that leads to that cops don't usually use yarn <laughs> they just put cards up on corkboards and that's what what Wayne and Roland are doing they're assembling all their clues but like you know they they uh they write down cards that say stuff like why lie or mm-hmm. you know secret, secret friend, friend. <laughs> yeah <laughs> do you know that there are some quantum physicists who think that we all are living inside Russ Cole's yarn wall <laughs> I think that that's what Amelia is talking about at the end yeah. of the episode. So, yeah. um, yeah. So, uh, I'm, I can't wait to see what else goes up on, on that cork board. Um, that should be a fun thing to like freeze frame on and, and read all the cards if you can. But, um, that's, that is something that is happening. Um, three yarn walls outside Fayetteville. <laughs> <laughs> three index cards outside. Yeah. I love it. Um, all right. So then, uh, we also get this scene back in 1980, uh, that's super weird, I think, of Amelia and Wayne being part of a search party, like going through a field. And it didn't strike me as super weird the first time I watched it, but now watching it through like the lens of your, um, Amelia theory, I'm like, 
I'm trying to read what the actress is giving me in this scene. Um, they talk about poetry. Um, he gives his, you know, interpretation of the Robert Penn Warren poem. She gives her, she seems slightly impressed that his like thoughts on it are like somewhat deep. Um, we, uh, he asks her out. She doesn't answer. We don't see her answer. We can yeah. assume she says yes because they're married and have kids later. Um, she just looks on edge in that whole exchange. Um, in a way that like, you know, we've seen Amelia maybe like cover things with charm. We've seen her do like various things, but here she just looks like, uh, like, like kind of scared and freaked out. So I don't know, um, you know, what we're meant to take from that, but yeah, uh, I don't know. And I'm thinking about her and her place in this and those little, little notes from that, that, um, Julie had and, you know, she's a teacher. I know she didn't, she's not supposed to have had Julie at school yet because she's like middle school, high school. But like something about that one note that said, don't listen, like yeah. would imply that maybe like a kid telling a grown up about like their parents fighting or something like that, you know, yeah. and like some sort of comfort. And she does have that sort of warm presence with the kids because she gets information out of them. So like, I don't know, I could see like her being sort of manipulative in that way and like slipping a note to like Will to give a sister or something, you know, I, I don't know. I completely agree. Like that's that, you know, um, thinking of more like cult leaders or whatever, because maybe that's something I've watched more documentaries on. Like you target. And you were one for a time. So (laughs) I mean, famously, you target, you, you didn't hear about Joanna Town. Um, you target. people who are like naturally kind of isolated we talked about this before or people who are vulnerable and so like she's trying if if she was trying to do something with these children whatever it might be then she would want to isolate them from her from their parents which is not hard to do with the Purcells who are like drunk and fighting and like whatever it is mm-hmm. you know what i mean but like telling telling a julie or a will like I can protect you. I'm here for you. You always have me. Like, I'm your, I'm the captain now. I'm your mother now. Like, whatever it is, you know, like, um, I, I can totally see that. I agree. Um, do we want to talk about this scene where she comes back, like, kind of high from talking to the detectives and, like, is all riled up and Wayne yells at her? I think it's a really well done scene. I mean, I think that, I think it's, it's interesting because we see both of their sides of it. You know, he's, in some ways, like, reasonable being like, you come in here all giddy about this shit. But at the same time, he's being kind of hypocritical about her drinking, about whatever, you know, um, and being a bit, a bit paternal, like, like kind of regressive. Yeah. Yeah. About, about her role and kind of throwing it in her face that she hasn't seen her kids all day. And I didn't get that shit you wanted at the store. Um, it's, and it was shit that like the house needs to kind of function, you know, toilet paper. (laughs) You use it. Yeah. 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 Um, Um, but I, so I think that, that, that kind of balance of, of both being, in the wrong, but also somewhat in the right, or at least being fair. I thought that was well calibrated and really well acted. Yeah. And then I also like to think of when you, whenever you read a murder, like when I read an Agatha Christie book, um, where I already know who the murderer is. And then I like to try to watch, cause I think Agatha Christie is the best at this, the, the distraction she throws up to keep us from figuring out who the murderer is. Mm-hmm. And so like Amelia's whole like self-righteous sort of feminist speech here, um, where she's right in some of the, or like, you know, the things that she says, she's like, how dare you like imply that my job is just to like be around my children. I care about my children. Like, fuck you, dude. Um, you know, that feels like, a calculated way to distract us from like how, yeah, giddy she is. Like we would be perturbed by how like high she is on this, except then you're like, well, come on, Wayne, she's allowed to like leave her house and not see her kid. You know what I mean? It's like a distraction. So I, I find that to be pretty, um, she also wrote a, wrote a literal book on it. Yeah. She was instrumental, at least in the investigation scenes we've seen so far in 1980 with the the initial investigation. She was instrumental in getting the kids to talk. So in some ways she has just as much of a stake, even if she's not legally, you know, been deputized, she has as much of a stake in the case as he does. And to sort of act like, you know, her sort of interest in it is somehow less valid than his, even if there is a hint of prurience in it, like, um, you know, is unfair. I completely agree with you. Um, then we get this like weird, um, 
So so Eliza, the the TV TV producer director, is is talking to Wayne in 2015. She starts to you know not just imply, just like flat out say basically that like there were holes in the investigation because there were people in the neighborhood who were not interviewed. She mentions the same brown sedan that the farmer mentioned, um, and. You know, Wayne gets kind of flustered and leaves. But actually, the most interesting part of this scene for me is this interaction then that follows between Henry and Eliza. Totally. Yeah. They're talking to each other as if they're more familiar. She's like, Henry. Yeah. She's and, like, Henry. And, and he's like, and Eliza. And Wayne picks up on it. Wayne picks yeah. up on it. And he gets annoyed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought that was a really, really subtle but really well done thing. Yeah. Um, kind of hinting at something. But she also mentions the black man with the scar, right? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so like, yeah. and, and just said like this, these have been reported, but never made the official file or whatever, right? Like that was the issue. Yeah. The official report. I think it's also though in this scene and in a subsequent one with the big one with, with the flashback or the, the ghost essentially of Amelia, yeah. I think it becomes clear that 2015 Wayne is trying to figure out what people know. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't think that he is still investigating the I think he knows the end of something and is trying to figure out if other people do. Or like thinks he knows at least, you know? Right. Um right. anyway, yeah. So so that that's interesting. I'm glad I'm glad that that wasn't just like stuck out just to me, that whole Eliza Henry interaction. Um, then we see uh, Brett Woodard, uh, the the trash fella, riding around in his um, vehicle, and we get another bit of like fun racial stuff um, as these, um, um, you know, hicks. I don't know. I feel bad every time I call, but like, come on, they're racist, so I don't know. But anyway, they're they're kicking the they they they. Basically, they menace him. They tell him to stop, like, stop hanging around their kids. They accuse him, basically, of, of being responsible for this. They, he's like, oh, fuck you. I fought in Vietnam. I fought for your rights. Like, you can't treat me like a second class citizen. He's like, I've got kids. They're like, you're nothing. You're trash. Um, and then he, like, they, they, they kick him to a point where, like, if it were me, I would have stayed down and he doesn't. And he like keeps fighting. Uh, yeah. and then until they draw a gun on him. Uh, and so he know. says, I have kids. And one of them says, no, you don't. What like an, what like a, an infuriating thing yeah. to say, like, what? Like, yes, I, you know, like, I don't know. It just, I, I, there, there's a, there was a moment in this scene where I was like, oh, are these guys just kind of cartoonish? brute hicks? And it's like, no, I guess if everyone was riled up about a child murder and abduction, like, Maybe that sort of bassist behavior kind of group mentality would, would kind of come out and lead people to say stupid things like, no, you don't have kids. No, you don't have children. Yeah. Um, all right. And, 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 okay. And then next I have like a very important question for you, Richard, which mm. is like on a scale of one to 1990 Stephen Dorf, what do you think? Where do you think clean shaven Scoot McNary, uh, falls? Oh, I think he's look good. I, I mean, I, I think, I think it's funny <laughs> that it was a conversation between two guys who just like got their look together. Yeah. <laughs> they found Jesus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. got or sober. Or one of them did anyway. Yeah. One of them yeah. found Jesus, uh, got sober and, uh, you know, got, got it together. So yeah. Um, we find out that, yeah, that not only is Tom Purcell like doing a little bit better, albeit like living in, I don't know, kind of shitty housing, but like, um, that, uh, Roland is directly responsible. Like he, he gives credit to Roland for pulling him out of a hole five years ago for helping him get sober, for helping him find Jesus or whatever. Um, I don't know that like Roland believes in Jesus and I actually, we know Roland's not sober cause he drinks Southern comfort in this episode, but, um, you know, like it, it, you know, it, Roland has this sort of like a proud of you buddy like relationship with Tom. So. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think, I think something that I'm responding to with the whole Roland dynamic is like, I guess I'm just not used to seeing Steven Dorff play nice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of refreshing. Yeah. Um, that said, I think there's also a sort of trouble dynamic to this scene. I think there's a tr- sort of also trouble dynamic to the scene where Tom says, what happened to the other one? And it's the, it's the white detective and the white, you know, oh, for sure. guy who bonded and, and, Wayne was left on the outside of that, whether that's because he was too troubled by the case or if there was or both, you know, or there, there was a racial element or both of that. Like, I just think that, you know, again, a sort of subtle indication of how Wayne is left out of, you know, sort of particular systems um, in this community. 
I completely agree with you. Um, we find out also in the scene, I think this is the first time we've heard that like the case is being opened. Well, earlier we heard, uh, the guy's family. This here we hear the guy's kids, the guy's kids, uh, open this case back up, um, in 1990. Right. Um, which is why, you know, we're, we're pursuing all of this. Um, we see this really, you know, um, Tom asks Roland to pray with him. Roland does not look like at all into it, but Tom says some weird stuff here about like, God save me from my anger. You know, he's like real fundamentalist, but like, it's, it's like Roland looks slightly uneasy by, you know, what he says yeah. here. So. And we mentioned that Lucy has died, right? We found yes. that out. Yeah. Lucy okay. died five years, or I don't, they Lucy don't died say in, in Vegas at some point. Um, not that we're, you know, that surprised. Rest in peace, Lucy. All right. So this is like, this isn't the last scene, but it's like the showstopper scene of the episode, which is 2015 Wayne going over some clues um, in his office. We see not only that Amelia wrote a book called Life and Death in the Harvest Moon, but she's got a follow-up book called I Can't Tell You Why. We don't know what that's about. Um, and then like some of her file, her research for the book and stuff like that. And um, Wayne is just now making the connection between the brown sedan that Eliza mentioned and the brown sedan that the farmer talked about. Um, the the camera zeroes in on his gun. And then... Uh, and then we get the static sound and we get a ghost, a good, good, good ghost. Um, that is Amelia. Where do you, when do you like judging by hairstyle? When do you think this is like what time of Amelia is? This I think this be? is when he met her, Amelia. Okay. Like 80 Amelia, 80? but I think it's kind of 90 plus Amelia talking. Okay. You know, I think it's a sort of idealized physical memory of her mm. that sort of um, po- sort of poisoned a bit by, and granted, I'm seeing I'm I'm seeing this through the framework of me thinking that she's the killer, which we, we could be completely wrong. But like, there's it'll a be sin- really funny. If we're yeah, <laughs> but the but if but if Amelia coming back as this kind of sinister ghost, yeah, and taunting him in a way, um, I don't know. That seems to sort of uh, it's suggest because that. once again, I watched this episode before. Like you talked to me about your theory and then after you talked to me about your theory. And like when the first time I saw it, I was like, I was saddened by it. I was like, Oh, here's Amelia telling him like the recriminations that she's throwing at him when she says stuff like, did you harden your heart against what loved you most and things like that? I felt like, okay, Wayne fucked up in the past and alienated his wife and you know that's a regret he has and so like the recrimination in here is like you got so consumed by the case or so consumed by these other things that like you you put this distance between me and stuff in this episode would like bear that interpretation out but if you see it again uh you know like with that more sinister cast to it like She's not, she's not what loved him most. So maybe she's talking about Becca because they also talk about Becca here. Like, or I don't know. Or Roland. Or Roland. Yeah. Um, something like that. But, you know, basically Amelia shows up and she starts getting like very Rust Colian in her dialogue. She says stuff like, are you starting to wake up, um, to that? Or like the past and present and future are all stubbornly persistent illusion. Are you starting to wake up to that now that, uh, now as things fall apart, are you awakening to what you withheld? Um, and is that withheld evidence? Is that withheld emotions? Like, you know, did you confuse reacting with feeling? Did you mistake compulsion with freedom? This is the kind of stuff where like, Maybe it's lyrical and beautiful, or maybe it's empty nonsense. I don't know. I honestly couldn't tell you, but like, um, Carmen Ajogo's performance is so alluring that like, the same with Matthew McConaughey, like, that I'm just sort of like, okay, I'm, I'm along for this ride. Like, whatever yeah. this is, I'm here for it. But so. if you want to get like, if nitpicky or, or not nitpicky, but, um, sort of granular and, and probably bullshitty, did you confuse reacting with feeling? Okay. So reacting is Wayne responding to a crime and doing something about it in, in, in this sort of, you know, continuation of his police duty feeling could be Amelia wanting something and taking it. 
uh, compulsion could be the compulsion to do good, like Wayne feels or whatever, and, and to and to be duty bound and to you know serve those who who you know kind of tell him what to do. Whereas Amelia had freedom and she created her own masterpiece. You know, I don't know, like that kind of bullshit killer talk. <laughs> like it could be in there. I don't know. And I was thinking, like, did you mistake compulsion with freedom? Is like in his assessing her. Yeah. Um, did like you know she seems kind of free spirited in her like um oh i'm gonna get dressed up like bookish and sexy but like or is that actually like compulsive mania of like a killer you know what i mean like and, is and, she and, a free spirit yeah. or is she a sociopath you know and, yeah exactly did you misconfuse reacting with feeling did yeah. you actually think that i felt something or i was actually just kind of play acting yeah exactly um um so yeah so not no, i didn't mean like a blanket empty nonsense i just mean some of this other stuff of like you know some some metaphysicists say like blah blah whatever, oh fully yeah stuff, you know um and then he talks about Becca. He sees his kids. He sees Henry and Becca when they're younger. Um, and he says, you know, I, uh, I lost her and, and the, you know, the ghost, uh, of Amelia says, no, you did not the way you think. And then he says, how much do I have to lose? And she says, everything same as everybody else. So, mm. um, and then, and then more concretely, you're worried what they'll find, what you left in the woods, finish it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, I was thinking like, did he kill her in the woods? But like, we don't really know. Do we know how she died, Amelia? It was an illness, right? I th- I think it's like everyone knows how Amelia died. Like right, not okay. not uh, that he buried her in the woods somewhere. The things they carried and buried, but uh, some things in the, the woods. There's also an interesting thing in this scene where it would seem to indicate that. 2015 Wayne has at some point seen the matrix because he quotes switch from that movie saying not like this, not like this. (laughs) (laughs) He does say that twice, just like her in the movie. Um, and so like, what do you think of, 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 uh, ghosts being introduced like to the narrative you know i mean i think if the if the show this season is already going there in terms of the you know um impersistence of memory and the sort of when when are we kind of thing you know like like bernard and westworld on the fritz kind of like when am i um why wouldn't hallucinatory visions be part of that you know specters that kind of haunt in your office late at night when you've been trying to reorder your your brain you know um i i kind of like this show going in that sort of more not supernatural exactly but close to direction yeah no i like it too like you um you mentioned that like when i thought when i thought i heard like helicopter blades whirring you're like yeah it's probably it's probably that (laughs) like that's probably what it is and like yeah i i like that i like that blurring of like this continued blur of reality and memory and like my least favorite TV trope is Ghost Dad. I think I'm sure we've talked about Ghost Dad at some point. Um, you know, it crops up in a lot of prestige TV. Ghost Wife is also like, you know, especially if it's a Leonardo DiCaprio film, like a really tired thing. But this is a really uh, like, especially if she's killer ghost wife, like it's a it's a pretty good one. So yeah, but also we 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 should mention, you know, just in terms of the ongoing debate about Nick Pizzolatto and True Detectives approach to women and women characters. We've got two dead wives now. Oh, no. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, uh, fingers crossed that, uh, Henry's wife, wh- whose name is Heather, uh, makes it through all of this, uh, in one piece. But yeah, Ghost Wife, Ghost Wife is not a good look for if, if for a show that maybe is like trying to, uh, prove itself uh, in terms of its treatment of women. That said, it's, a, I think it's a pretty captivating scene. And I think that Carmen and Jogo is great in it. As she's, is she's Ali. fantastic. Uh, she's fantastic. All right. Um, so a couple things before we wrap up. Um, after he gets the shit beat out of him, Brett Woodard moves something that looks like very much like a body in a duffel bag. It's a big sack of something. <laughs> it's a big sack of something that looks like it has limbs. Um, and, uh, we like Roland is trying to recruit Wayne for this, uh, task force. Actually, I want to close out with that. And so, uh, the, the, 
the thing I will say before that is that Wayne and Roland go to visit Tom and Lucy and they find this photo album, which has a photo of Will's first communion when he was 10. And he's got like the prayer hands pose, the same pose that he was posed yeah. in uh, when he was dead. And uh, Ali's so great in that scene where he's just, his face kind of freezes and he's still crouched looking at the album and he just goes, Roland. Yeah. Like, just like, I found something. I just think that's like, it was like, I got to get chill watching that. Right. But also I really like Stephen Dorff's delivery of it's the same. Like it was mm-hmm. just really good. Like of kind of like a mundane clue, not mundane, but like you know, uh, over a photo. But their performances really sold it as this monumental. You know, it made me think it must be fun to play a detective when you know how to do it, and uh, when the writing it works. You know, it just because like you get in that mode. I don't know. I just I thought that whole scene was really well done. Um, I agree. I agree. And then here's our last scene, which is in this vet bar where um, you know, Roland has already sort of asked. Uh, summoned Wayne, basically. And Wayne instead has gone to this bar to get drunk. Or maybe he said, meet me at the bar. I don't know. But anyway, he's, Wayne's a couple drunk, uh, drinks in. It's the VFW. It's, it's uh, the VFW. It's, um, Roland it, doesn't quite belong there. I know, which is a nice little, like, flip of the table, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, there's so many places Wayne doesn't belong. And here Roland walks in and he's like, give me But he's fingers. rude and gets served anyway. <laughs> Well, Wayne, like, sort of intercedes on his behalf, and he's like, serve him, he's a lieutenant, like, in the Arkansas police, go ahead and serve him. But, um, but yeah, and then we get, like, um, I think the most embittered version of Wayne in terms of, like, his, um, the limitations of being a black man in Arkansas when he says, like, you know, oh, you've done well for yourself. Does that promotion come from like merit or pigment, like pigmentation? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, he basically talks about, and then he, he, I don't think we knew this that, um, Roland got shot at some point, uh, in the 1980 investigation or, or, you know, he's like, Wayne, Wayne says that when he's like, if I had gotten shot, you know, I too would probably be playing golf all day and like, you know, and then, and then Roland fires back and he's like, yeah, yeah, if I couldn't keep my big mouth shut, I probably would also be on desk duty. Like, you know, these are, these are the things that they're jabbing at each other with. Um, but, you know, at the end of it, um, Roland really wants Wayne to work with him. Like, no matter, like these, these little swings that they're taking each other don't really matter in the face of like their deeper, bond and friendship and you know just as much as amelia is drawn to playing detective in her own like potentially creepy way like this is what they love to do which is play detective be detectives so he's like do you want to be a detective again like get off the desk come join me and do this let's get the gang back together let's do this so yeah so now we're starting a second wayne roland collab investigation Mm -hmm. because the first three episodes you know, beginning with the interview scenes in 1990, we're kind of leading up to this moment where like, okay, now we're back in the case. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I'm delighted to see the team back together again, even though, you know, it's only been three episodes. Um, and uh, like, here's, here's my biggest question for you. Mm -hmm. Since, um, 19, Obviously, it's wig-based. Since 1980, uh, we've got this, like, very interesting blonde situation on Stephen Dorff's head. And then in the 1990, this is, like, what I believe Stephen Dorff's actual hairline looks like. It looks great. Uh, are we going to see 2015 Stephen Dorff? And if so, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited should I be for old-age makeup Stephen Dorff? <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything, Joanna. <laughs> okay. I'll just, I'll be quietly excited, uh, over here at the potential. Yep. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, that's True Detective season three, uh, or episode three. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> the, that's the end of the show, folks. We did it. Yay. Um, well, let us take this opportunity to talk to Ray Fisher about his character, Henry. Hey, Joanna. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Okay. I can't complain. I cannot complain. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is your first major TV role, right? Uh, I'd done one day of shooting on the Astronaut Wives Club for ABC uh, some time back, but this is my first significant stint with TV. What is it like to do a story like this that refracted over multiple episodes in this way? I think the arc of the character is essentially the same as far as uh, other mediums go. Uh, it is an elongated amount of time. I mean, we've got eight episodes to tell this story as opposed to the two hours that we have in a film or the, the, the two and two plus hours that we would have to tell uh, the character story in uh, theater. 
But I think the overall approach is the same. Uh, and luckily with uh, Nick at the helm, with the phenomenal job of writing this thing that he's done, I, you know, everything is pretty clear. It's not as clear to the audience because obviously in the execution of it, um, you know, we're bouncing back and forth between multiple timelines. I was, uh, I was talking to maybe Gummer, who obviously works in a different time stream than you do in this, in the show. And she was saying that she only got the parts of the script that related to her character. Did you have the same experience? Uh, I did not. Uh, fortunately, I like to know everything. <laughs> so okay, you got the whole picture. <laughs> I got I got all the episodes, yeah. So I, I know all the ins and outs of what's going to happen. I can't tell you specifically what's right. going to happen, obviously, Monday. I'm sworn to secrecy. But, uh, yeah, no, it, it just gives me a better sense uh, as to the, the history of the characters. We don't want you to spoil anything for us, but I'm wondering if you can give me your general sense of how you felt when you first read the story all the way through. I uh, it's uh, I would say bittersweet. I say when uh, when uh, all all in all, uh, it's part of you doesn't want it to end, <laughs> um, but I without giving too much away, I'd say my my general reaction was a uh, was a bittersweet one. Did you have any conversations with Nick Pizzolatto about references, either film or book or other TV shows, um, that he wanted you to check out before you came to work on this one? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, luckily, I had enough of a sense as to the show um, from previous seasons to get a good idea as to where everything was going. Um, but also, I didn't want to necessarily put myself in the well in the in the box of thinking it's going to be like this film or like this TV show, and then you get to set, and the director's like, "No, no, no, it's not like that at all." You know, <laughs> right, right. Luckily, we had a. Luckily, you know, Nick made himself really available to, you know, with as busy as he was doing everything else. It must be fun to play opposite Mahershala doing this big swing in all of this old age prosthetic makeup. But is it disorienting at all to have to play the son of someone who's really only just 10 years older than you? When we were at the table read, I was like, <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to convincingly pretend there's no way he's old enough to be that. Yeah. But when they got him in the prosthetics, and I'm sure you've seen it, I mean, they... They'd done they'd done such a great job turning him, transforming him into that seventy year old version of himself um, that you I completely forgot and it was him. Um, <laughs> I, I told him my joke. I said I don't remember what he looked like uh, without makeup on, without prosthetics on, because I had only ever met him once prior to that, and that was during the table reads. So. Uh, uh, whenever somebody says Mahershala, that's my instant. <laughs> that's, the, that's the picture that pops up in my head. The picture of like old man Mahershala. Was he staying in character between takes or was, did he like revert to like interior youthful Mahershala with all these like old age prosthetics on them while you guys had downtime? I think uh, when it, during the downtime, he, he, he was pretty good yeah. at coming out of it. Um, and I think, you know, for as heavy as the material is, you know, I, I feel like, you know, you, you kind of have to come out every now and then, lest you fall into that pit and never return. <laughs> but um, I think, uh, you know, he, he was actually, and and I, I don't say these things lightly, but one of the greatest people you could probably work with, one of the best scene partners, so very open, very giving. Um, I, the energy, the positive energy that he would bring to the set you know, we, we, like I said, we had really long days. We had a lot of uh, really, really hard days. But, you know, just having that positive energy, having those positive vibes around really made the difference. And it's something that is amazing to see from someone who is at the, the height of his career, you know, behaving with such grace and poise and being able to uh, uh, to really be the, the, the spearhead for us. You mentioned... Um like the heaviness of the material, the need to take sort of mental breaks from it. Can you, once again, without spoiling anything, the hardest thing you had to film uh, without getting specific, and then maybe sort of how you, how you cope with the heaviness of, of anything that you had to deal with? Uh, I think that the hardest thing I had to film is yet to be seen on the screen. I can't tell you which episode it's in, and I can't really tell you what the scene is about. It is involving Mahershala, I can tell you that. Um, there is a bit, there's a bit of confrontation that, uh, two, two big bouts of confrontation that both he and, that uh, Henry and Wayne have. 
in the show that we've yet to see. And those are some of the more difficult, uh, more difficult processes because it's, it's draining, you know, putting yourself in the, in the shoes of that character and dealing with a father who, uh, despite all of the advice given to him, you know, will not stop attempting to solve this case despite his mental condition uh, and, and how, and how, and how is it that one deals with those sorts of things? You know, I have family members who, uh, are dealing with Alzheimer's and dementia. Uh, so, you know, it ends up hitting very close to home. I think, you know, there's probably not a single person who, who doesn't know someone who's affected by those conditions in some way, shape or form. And it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to watch. It's a hard thing to see. And, uh, Mahershal delivers some really heartbreaking moments and truthful and grounded and real moments in this that, you know, it, it, it would spring forth a lot of that real world experience that I've had with people, uh, who don't remember who I am, you know, and are losing their memory and are losing themselves and struggling to hold on. You know, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to see. And we, we actually had a really good conversation about it, about, you know, whether or not, you know, it's something that uh, we should feel sorry for the person who's, you know, losing their memory or, or losing their, their sort of um, their capacity. And, you know, one of the points that Mahershala brought up was that, you know, that person doesn't know what they're missing. They don't know what they've lost. It's us on the other end who remember the times we had with that person who, you know, feel it that much more because every day, every day could be a fresh day for them, you know? they don't know that they should worry about about uh, the things that they don't remember. You know, it's a, uh, it's a very interesting, it was a very interesting point. I thought it was, I thought it was really poignant as well, but there's no, uh, you, you generally feel bad because of what the, what the relationship was yeah. that you had with that individual. You know, I'm sad because this person does not remember me. Um, they are still in a, they could be in a very happy place where they're at right now mentally. Um, but it's just wanting to hold on to what was for us as the people who are still sound of mind um, that really, I think that that's what really weighs on us. Something I find so com- compelling about the Henry character is that, um, you know, he, you're, he's such like a strong figure, like physically looks strong. They like mention his athleticism. He's the head of a family. He's got a good job. Um, and then we're watching this, like this vulnerability that a lot of adults have to deal with. Like I, I recognize my own experience, as you say, of like family members who didn't recognize me anymore. And like, so it's a, it's a really identifiable experience, but it's also interesting to watch this sort of like, I don't know, stereotypical example of masculinity grapple with these kind of almost like childlike um, feelings of, of upset when you watch your father. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> From P.